This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Shopping.io. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Hey guys, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. My next guest, Oliver Gale, he's a good friend of mine. He lives in the Barbados, is from the Barbados, and he's very good at scavenger hunts. He came last year and in, into Florida, and we did an amazing scavenger hunt. Oliver, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, I usually do these like long introductions for people, but I will tell I will tell the listeners you are the the founder and chief technical officer of Bit, which I, I definitely want to talk about. Um, you're currently the CEO of Pay Machine, and you're the managing partner at Base Two Capital. You're also an advisor for a lot of different projects, and I really want to talk about crypto in the Caribbean. When when you came and we spent some time together here. I was very intrigued because from what you were explaining to me, um, my listeners, you know, some of my listeners are involved in like, like I am too small town politics. You live in a smaller town and you get involved in like, what roads are they building or what restaurants are they allowing to be, to be uh, opened and um, traffic and the police. And you have, you know, I, I live in a small, I, I can call up the police chief. Now I have her cell phone number, you know, it's very small town. But with you in Barbados, especially, it's very small town politics, but on a on a national level. You know what I mean? Hundred percent. That's a pretty good way of describing it. Uh, we have two hundred and seventy thousand people in Barbados, which is smaller than many small towns in somewhere like the U.S. Yet, if you come to Barbados, the island is huge culturally. It's huge. Geographically, we have diversity from the East Coast to the West Coast. There are even different accents in different parts of the of this small island. Are there really? Absolutely. If you, if you talk to people from St. Philip or St. Lucie, they have a different way of speaking the same language. And so it's, I think that's interesting from the perspective of just social structures. And yeah, I mean, one of the great things about being in a small island, and this was something that we recognized really early on with Bit, was that one of the main advantages is access to people and also the ability to, to have an impact uh, on your political or regulatory or even economic uh, frameworks in, in the island. And so that's, you know, that's been one of the great strengths that we bet on for a long time. Obviously, there are also drawbacks which we have had to hurdle and to some extent are still hurdling but the fundamentals for what we've done at bit and for the listeners who don't know bit started as the caribbean's first uh, bitcoin exchange and cryptocurrency wallet and then uh, as we encountered more and more of these banking and political regulatory pressures we pivoted and pivoted until we were at the top of the food chain building central bank distributed payment systems and so that's we talk about we, mm-hmm. we talk about we talk about like not only having to launch a company but we talk about having to launch an industry and mm-hmm. as as hard as it was in the u.s back in 2012 2011 um it was infinitely harder if not still is in barbados because you are you are the first company in that country you were the um really had to forge and to pave your way and to convince everyone to work with you. And I've seen pictures. You have a, a huge staff of people now, um, you're, you're large company by, by any standards, but especially by uh, Barbadian standards. How, how did that really like come to be? How did you guys get the funding to do that? How did you convince people to, to even like come work for you? Like, how did you, this, this weird Bitcoin thing? I, I mean, you know about it even better than we do. Um, it was, that was one of the biggest challenges and also one of the biggest joys of being a pioneer in the cryptocurrency space and in our region particularly. You know, as you know, every conversation began with what is Bitcoin? And then very likely the conversation went on to, oh, but I heard that that's associated with Silk Road and of course. Uh, and then Mount Gox and, you know, the litany of bad press and misunderstanding that just comes with the territory. And you have to fight through that first and show people a vision, a new paradigm, really. 
And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for the business partner, um, for the fact that the founders, the way that Gabriel Abed and I chose one another as partners and saw complementary skill sets and had what I would describe as an undying passion for entrepreneurship and change. And I think that characterizes a lot of people, including yourself, who who got into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency really early on. And it was for, you know, ideals or altruistic reasons, or maybe seeing a massive opportunity for disruption and transformation. But I believe there was a unifying theme uh, of rebelliousness and dissatisfaction. And we put our hearts on our sleeves. And to this day, Bit's motto is empower people. And we're in that mission statement, we found a lot of highly intelligent, young, predominantly young professionals from all walks of life, largely Caribbean people, but not exclusively, who saw an opportunity to transform Barbados, the Caribbean, the world, and wanted to be part of that. So more than anything else, we our primary currency was dreams, hopes, and aspirations. Tell us about you know, like I, we don't have enough time on the show, but tell us about like the history of Barbados. You talk about frustration, right? So mm-hmm. when you talk about why crypto is needed, you're you're not thinking of Barbados. You're thinking of Venezuela, Argentina, um, you know, Greece in that time period, uh, Russia, potentially. You're thinking of these places where China, you're thinking of where um, your currency is like and your economy and your government are controlling you and um, there's frustration and there's crazy inflation in North Korea, Cuba, um, places where, where where Bitcoin is is needed, where crypto is needed. Now, I mean, not the United States, obviously, um, even though the growth here has been crazy, but it's it's not the first place that really needs Bitcoin. Um, I got to be honest with you, when people think about Barbados, I'm thinking of Rihanna, vacation, um, beaches, beautiful. Tell us why and in the history of that. I think. It was fortunate in many ways because I'm from Barbados. That's my home. And the co-founder of Bit is also from Barbados. So, But, but I think it was going to happen. If it wasn't us, it was going to be someone else that saw the opportunity and also was feeling the pain. And the pain really is the pain of not having financial inclusion for 60% of people in this region. The pain is having currency controls where you don't have access to international markets or e-commerce. Uh, you cannot be part of the digital transformation wave, which has been you know, driving more developed economies around the world, whilst these emerging markets are essentially locked out by correspondent banking relationships, by regulatory, foreign regulatory will, what I would call neocolonialism and a lack of sovereignty. Because if you don't control your payment system, and I've heard correspondent bankers come to the Caribbean, and this is not to knock the banking industry, but it's no, also the call, it's, it's to call out what was said and what was seen and what's been experienced. They'd get on a podium and say, we acknowledge that if we cut a nation's correspondent banking relationships, that's as good as passing an embargo. And we've seen countries like Belize have no correspondent banking relationships. And I've heard stories of container loads full of cash being transported across the ocean just to sustain some of the basic goods and services because you have these territories that... Was Barbados's banking system at risk for losing its correspondent banking relationship? Totally. We've been blacklisted. And I mean, we've been blacklisted okay, so, but for, no good, for no good reason. I'll go on the record so and let's, say that. No, of course. So, so correspondent banking basically connects your country's financial system to the world. So basically, without having the ability to join the global financial network of banking, your country is virtually cut off. In fact, in fact, it's how we are currently putting economic sanctions on countries like Iran. So what essentially the United States did was it told SWIFT and the other international correspondent networks to cut off all Iranian banks <clears throat> from doing business with 
the global banking system. So think about what that means for a second. That means that you have the inability to move money and to trade with any other, not just the United States, but any other government, any other country in the world. And that is single-handedly the biggest weapon that, that anyone could have. And so the mere threatening of removing your country from this correspondent banking relationship, and what that means is, is you have the ability, when you wire money from, for example, the United States, from Canada to South America, it passes through the United States. Almost all banking, almost all wire transfers, any uh, financial movement, and I'm sorry I'm taking some of your time, Oliver. I'm, I just want my listeners to understand no, how much of a, of, a, of a big deal this is. Any wire transfer that happens globally almost always passes through the United States or passes through United States banks overseas. So when you blacklist a country, you're, you're virtually making it a sitting duck. The country can't do anything, anything. And so when that, a mere threat of that happening, the mere threat, this is why I don't believe one country, one country or one government should have the ability to do this. It should be an international like board similar to the UN. The, the mere threat of this essentially removes property values, goes away, the property values, anything your country produces, no one could pay you for it. You're virtually cut off from the world. Correct. And so we experienced that on a small level, trying to launch a Bitcoin exchange. And then we closed the Series A round with Overstock. Dr. Patrick Byrne came to Barbados and spent time with our team. Uh, Gabriel met him at Satoshi Roundtable and he he saw a vision of what we were doing because in 2016, we used the Colored Coins protocol to issue the Barbadian digital dollar, which was the second stable coin. Tether had come out you know, just before us. And we saw the innovation that they had enacted and thought that was a great way to provide some stability to Bitcoin because the vision was to enable Bitcoin payments. And so the day we closed that deal on a Thursday, we were in the national newspaper front page on a Friday and on Monday morning, I was CFO. I got a phone call from the bank manager saying our account had been closed. And I said, well, this wow. has to do with our investment. She said, absolutely not. It has nothing to do with your investment. Nonetheless, your account's closed. So then we were building a mobile money ecosystem. We had no way to bank it. So we had to design a mobile money network to be cash-driven. We still have no banking. This is three... Really? Yeah, three years. None in Barbados. Three years and counting. We have no bank account. We're the most sophisticated fintech company in the Caribbean, but we don't have the technology of a checkbook. So on our mission, we then went to the Caribbean Association of Bankers to find out really why these guys are locking us out of having banking relationships. And you know, it was a room of about 40 chief executive officers and managing directors of banks. We went in and some representatives from the Caribbean Development Bank and other uh, you know, non-profit international organizations. And these guys were sitting down talking about what they were going to do about the fact that their correspondent banking relationships were threatened. They were talking about buying a U.S. bank to have their own correspondent banking relationships. And we went in the room thinking that these were the bad guys. And Oh, so they were potentially being threatened too. Hey, hey man, they're just another business, licensed business operating in the Caribbean. And they can't give us accounts because if they give us accounts, they might lose their accounts. And everybody's sitting in the same pot. So that's when light bulbs really started going off. And we said, you we're know, we're all what? in the same boat there. We're all in the same boat, buddy. So we looked at the governments and heard them saying something consistently economic stability and transformation. That's what we're interested in. So we found surprisingly in Eastern Caribbean Central Bank. Someone who was forward-thinking and daring, and two hurricanes had just swept through the Eastern Caribbean over the past three years. Total devastation. Dominica, as an example, totally devastated. So when we said, listen, we have an alternative here. We can use blockchain technology. We can uh, allow peer-to-peer -peer transfers secured by mathematics. We can provide alternative payment systems and give the islands interconnected 
independence that does not exclusively rely on the U.S. dollars, the euro, the pound. He said, well, our economy was bad before. It's just been devastated by hurricanes. If we don't take a risk now, I don't, I don't see a worse outcome. So let's try it. So you really created a micro financial, um, you created this like Caribbean island nation, um, like payment network here and not just for, for an actual need. And that had political and, you know, from weather ramifications that came from, um, you created this whole payment system. That's correct. So, you know, we're, I mean, we're Bitcoin evangelists, uh, believers in the technology and in, in full decentralization or as, as much as can be achieved. But we also recognize that fiat currency, legal tender, these interests are not going to go away. And if we can create a bridge between public decentralized cryptocurrencies and payment systems, which inherit some of the qualities of those payment systems, it actually enables the on and off ramps in a more seamless way. And ultimately, our belief is that the economics will prevail. Good money will prevail at the end of the day. So we don't have to fight that battle. That battle is being fought by every one of us around the world that believes in Bitcoin and believes in public permission assistance. The battle we're fighting, though, is the immediate one where we think and know and have experienced that the Caribbean and Africa and Asia and Latin America, all of these nations, you mentioned some great examples earlier, need alternative payment systems. Those payment systems should be interconnected, interoperable, secured by mathematics, peer-to-peer, and so forth. And so our mission is to enable that alternative payment system and provide central banks another tool in their arsenal. So that is, you know, that's bit.com. And that's how the, the journey really started. I think uh, you know, we're, now, we're now seeing that mission mature and you know we're working on other things as well there are other needs in the in the payments world and in the blockchain world so you know it's been fun you mentioned a point charlie i wanted to shout you out because you were one of the first ogs that we knew in the space and i guess it was 2013 or early 2014 we got on the phone with you said hey charlie you know we're we're building this digital asset exchange and we're the first in the Caribbean, and we wanted to get your thoughts on it. You, you, you were like, <laughs> I've heard this story, but yeah. I don't remember what I said. Well, you, I mean, we were like, hey, man, how much, you know, I'd never raised money before. Gabriel had never raised money to that extent before. We were like, how much do you think our business is worth? He said, man, listen, it's the first Caribbean exchange. It's got to be worth at least $2 million if you can get, <laughs> if, if you can build it. And we were like, yes, $2 million valuation. That's the number. And believe it or not, we went and raised our seed round out of Trinidad and Tobago, Peter George and Avatar Capital at a $2 million valuation. And and so like you just you having said that gave us no, it's so funny. It gave it gave us the price floor. <laughs> we were like, listen, man, it's, this is the valuation. I mean, Charlie Trump this is said what it is. this is what it is. This is what Charlie said. <laughs> Unfortunately, that doesn't work all the time. But thank <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Of course not. Did you? Was it hard to raise money in those days for for the company? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, I was. I what was, were you selling people on? Were you selling them the business model, or are you having to like convince them Bitcoin too? It was both. It was a Bitcoin exchange, and really, we were looking for the needle in the haystack because the investor that we found was the investor that we needed. It was a Caribbean entrepreneur who actually knew about Bitcoin and had bought Bitcoin and was an enthusiast about Bitcoin. And well, you got lucky there. I think, I mean, he's still one of the few in the Caribbean today. So it was a very fortunate introduction that was made through our network in Trinidad and Tobago. And yeah, I mean, capital raising is never easy, man. You got to convince people of the of Bitcoin and then your business model and your ability to execute the whole night. The most important part of our Bitcoin and crypto industry is being able to not only earn money in crypto, but also be able to spend it, earn rewards in crypto and keep that uh, revolution going, keep the cycle going of all of us together. Well, my partners at shopping.io are offering just that 
multi-tiered discounts up to 10% where you can spend your crypto anywhere that you're already buying everything already, Amazon, Walmart, eBay, but use your crypto to spend it, earn back cash back, earn back rewards. And not only that, but if you go to untoldstories.link forward slash shopping.io, you get an additional on top of every other discount, an additional 2%. So you can go there now and shop and get 12% off of everything you're already buying anyways uh, and use your crypto on shopping.io. You're supporting the industry. They're giving jobs to thousands of people around the world. I mean, you can ship to uh, almost any country in the world. Uh, fantastic, fantastic company. Thank you guys so much. Uh, make sure you check them out at untoldstories.link forward slash shopping.io. I am Charlie Shrem. Hey guys, I'm Charlie Shrem here in Las Vegas to teach some NFL players about Bitcoin with an amazing symposium tomorrow. But I wanted to congratulate our sponsor Kava because Circle chose the Kava platform as one of their newest blockchains and protocols they're gonna be launching USDC on. Traditionally, USDC has only been on Ethereum and one or two other chains like Tron. But now there's a bunch of other blockchains. The Kava platform is one of them and you can access all of those super cool DeFi high yield opportunities that are on the Kava platform now with USDC, which we know and love. So check them out at untoldstories.link forward slash Kava. And congratulations guys, having Circle choose y'all as the top blockchain for USDC to be launched on is a big freaking deal. I'm gonna go teach some football players about Bitcoin. Here's Courtney, I'm out. Is the culture in the, in the Caribbean different than it is especially with locals, people who are, you know, you're, you're born, raised there, not like transplants from other places, but you're born and raised there, your family generations is the, is the culture different than, than something that I'm more used to? Um, how do people view their governments? Do they, do they trust them? I mean, I have to be honest with you, like, and I'm talking about myself and I know the listeners we're we're largely unfamiliar with the governments of Caribbean Island nations. And I know that these governments have um, put on this facade of we're, you know, fun, love, good vibes, island nations. But at the end of the day, they still need to run. So I'm curious to see, like, do your do your governments run efficiently? Do you do you guys like them? And I don't want you to call anyone out negatively or positively. I'm just I'm more interested in in learning because you don't hear about really news from from these from these places. Yeah, I mean, these are largely tourism dollars coming in to, to fund everything. Yeah, there's a big offshore financial sector as well, but that's been completely battered by foreign policy and these uh, you know requirements to become what they call tax neutral or tax efficient, whilst the tax havens are now Delaware and United Kingdom. It, it was a matter of convenience when the offshore financial sector was empowered as a matter, and that's a foreign policy note. In the Caribbean people are really what define the culture of fun-loving and easygoing. That's the people. The government, you know, there are a lot of islands out here. There are a lot of independent countries. And so you find a range of competency versus incompetency. But it was really put... Really? Through, absolutely. I mean, some governments... And I, you say don't call names, but I mean, I'll call it out. The previous Barbadian government administration was so inept, and that's the best word I could use, and, and that was the oh. time that BIT was largely built, it was so inept that we had sewage running down the main road right next to the beaches in Barbados, making international headlines. I lived next to the beach. I had sewage every day waking up, going to sleep with that smell. And the government was doing absolutely nothing except serving their own interests. There was no innovation. There was no effort to really run an economy effectively. And the best thing that happened to Barbados was that when we had our elections last year, May, there was a landslide. Every single voting region in Barbados, all 33 of them voted for the other party. There were only two prevailing parties in Barbados. Really? It was a complete unprecedented landslide victory for the current administration who had to come in structure an imf bailout for barbados debt financing so and focus on essentially 
stabilization and transformation. And as part of the transformation, our Prime Minister, Mia Motley, got up on a podium and on national television multiple times and said, Barbados is going to issue a digital fiat currency. And companies like BIT are the type of companies that are going to transform this island and its economy. And she's been engaged in many different initiatives. And so that's an example of how even within one island, you can have complete polar opposites of, of vision and competency. And unfortunately, you know, the good comes with the bad. I guess the good is you have a lovely lifestyle. The bad is that uh, there's such a laid back mentality and a lack of resources in, in the public sector that we don't have the efficiency or the resources just to to enable transformation. And so, you know, I, that's my take on But you can, the, the, the bad thing is like what you said, but the good thing is that when you do have a leader that comes out and says, I want to do this, you can, you can literally call her up or call him up and say, Hey, let's work together. Um, you can't do that in the U S um, at all. I mean, you can call your local city councilman, but what does that do? Mm -hmm. Um, so when I was saying or like small town politics on a national level, you really have access. I talk to people in Slovenia. Um, they have the same ability, you know, small country, two million people. But you could go into the prime minister's office and say, hey, let's do some business. Um, Absolutely. You can do that in places like that. Absolutely. It's possible. I mean, the prime minister is very busy, but it's possible. We've done it before. And if you have, the, you know, you know, those are, let me put it this way. Yes, it's possible. You better not waste the time of your political no, of leaders. Not. And a lot of people, a lot of people think that, you know, oh, I'm going to come to the Caribbean and I'm going to go meet the prime minister and then I'm going to make a deal happen. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way because these small town economies, all, reputation also is the biggest currency you can trade on. And who knows you and who you know and what maybe what family structure you come from, those things all lend weight. And it's not necessarily the weight that some people think where it's an envelope. Like, oh, I know you, so let me pass you a brown envelope under the table. No, that doesn't, That's not the way it works. The way it works is your family has been in this island and friends with my grandfather and my great-grandfather. You have a reputation and a name in this island. You can't afford to destroy that. And therefore, that is reputation points that we give you there and some credibility that you you come into the table or into the conversation with and that was a that was a currency that we were fortunate to be able to trade with as founders of bit because we both of the founders had families who have names in the island and uh, have been on the island for a very long time so you know these were all factors as an entrepreneur you've got to look at what your assets are and all of those things went on to the way scales of, is it going to be possible to do what we think is possible from a small island like Barbados? Are you happy with where, where you guys are today? In many ways, yeah. I look, at, I look at the starting point and then I look at where, where I am, where our business is, and it's fantastic. I'm, I'm talking to you, Charlie. You know, I'm blessed every day. I, I, I made the right investments. I found and have met incredible people, Barbados, and now the Caribbean is on a trajectory for economic transformation of blockchain. And to be honest, that was something we started because I would say 60% of our time was spent speaking to different bodies and governments around the Caribbean. We were out of Barbados, but believe you me, we met the central bank and regulators in Trinidad, Jamaica, Antigua, Dominica, Cayman, Bermuda, uh, Curacao. We, anywhere that speaks English and even some places that don't, the guys from BIT were out there flying the banner high, advocating blockchain, Bitcoin, advocating distributed payment systems, speaking to the United Nations, Commonwealth Secretariat, the World Bank, Caribbean Development Bank, the, uh, I mean, you name it, the IMF. We did a lot of work that was necessary groundwork just to have a conversation about running a business. So that was 
one of the huge challenges. You know, it was education, but also advocacy work. Who's your favorite? <laughs> My favorite what? <laughs> <laughs> your favorite government to work with. Who are you just like blown away with how awesome they were? The... Tell me some funny stories. I mean, most most of us have never like interacted with, you know, even like people in any power. Like, yeah. so you're, you're going around meeting with all these. I see, I see all your pictures. You guys are interacting with all these governments and all these prime ministers and governors of central banks. I mean, do you have to care what you dress like in the morning? Is there a certain etiquette that has to have? Tell, tell us some stories about that. Yeah, that's a funny one because <laughs> I used to be, I used to be a big rebel when it came to dress code. And I said, I'm not wearing a suit. Why would I wear a suit in Barbados? It's hot out here. You're that's... talking to the flip-flop guy. Exactly. I'm like, it's a, yeah, exactly. This is a throwback <laughs> to colonialism. Why are we wearing suits in Barbados? I'm going to wear you know, short pants to which my business partner had huge objections. So I wore like jeans and that was compromised. So, you know, I think when you are young and you don't have, you don't have a track record behind you or support or infrastructure behind you, you do have to, you do have to play the part a little bit. Like you've got to, you've got to think of what other people might think coming from their narrow frame of reference. So. Yeah, dress code matters. I mean, one of, one funny story for Barbados was the central bank governor at the time. We got a, a meeting with him to talk about Bitcoin and central bank digital currencies. But primarily at that time, it was pretty early. We were talking about Bitcoin and trying to get some green lights to enable the business model that we needed, but also one that we thought could drive Barbados's economy. And so I was sitting at lunch, uh, one of our economic advisors, who also advises the government, set up the meeting. And we were sitting at lunch, and I said, you know, his name is uh, at the time Governor Delisle Worrell. He's now uh, just Dr. Delisle Worrell. So I said, Governor Worrell, we need to have some enabling framework for Bitcoin because this technology is unstoppable and it's going to happen one way or the other. And he said, uh, Oliver, I have news for you, which is that at no point in time will the Barbadian government and the central bank at any time in the near future be approving the use of Bitcoin. And I said, well, Governor, I have news for you. Whether you, <laughs> like, it, whether you like it or not, Barbados is already benefiting from the use of Bitcoin because you can go on to Expedia or I think it was Hotels.com was the first. You can go into hotels.com and you can buy a hotel room in Bitcoin. And here's what happens. The Bitcoin goes to the Bitcoin wallet of the processor. That processor then converts that Bitcoin into U.S. dollars. They then wire those U.S. dollars to the hotel in Barbados. And that props up your foreign exchange reserves, which you and I both know we need. And he kind of choked on his food a little bit and said, <clears throat> well, uh, you Dude, know. In some countries, yeah. you get the firing squad for that. Yeah, well, maybe, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, what that. do you want? You want you can fire, you can fire <laughs> shots at me all you want. It's a fact. It's the truth, and that's, I don't mean the words fire. I yeah, know yeah, I mean. no, no, no. I know, <laughs> I know what you mean, but it, the fact of the matter was, and is today, that these things are realities. And if there's one thing that we were, I'm never going to be afraid of doing is running from reality. And so when I said that, it actually changed the camber of the conversation because two points came across to him. Number one, you've just shown me a use case where Bitcoin actually becomes a driver of foreign exchange into our island, which is necessary. And number two, you've told me, whilst I may not know myself, but you've told me that this thing is not something that we have full jurisdiction over. So the conversation with the governor ended with him saying, listen, we're not going to be able to take an official position on this because Barbados is not in a position to be a leader on global regulatory sure. policy on Bitcoin. And understandably. Absolutely. But, you know, to, I would say credit to that um, central bank administration and to the government today, even whilst they may not have taken the moves that we want them to have taken and been as progressive as places like Bermuda, uh, they have allowed us to continue to innovate and experiment and we're making great progress. For my favorite government, it's definitely got to be, well, the governor of the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank. 
That man is a freedom fighter and a visionary, and he's enabled the Bit Central Bank digital currency pilot, which is being rolled across the entire Eastern Caribbean currency union. Tell me about him and tell me about that. Well, he's the guy that got up. Bit has a central bank meets blockchain conference, and he got up on the podium two years ago. We invited him and had maybe, I don't know, eight central bank representatives in attendance and those international governmental body representatives in attendance. And we've been working, the team at Bit, the executive and management team, is still working tirelessly on the pilot project and this type of sales cycle for central banks, which can take years. And yeah, he got up and he said, we need to, as Caribbean people, we need to look out for our interests. We need to work on our sovereignty. And our economic region has been lagging behind and these natural disasters are damaging our economy. And we must take a risk. And we are going to take a risk on a Caribbean company. And we are going to enter into a pilot project to use blockchain technology for digital payments. I don't promise you that it will be successful, but I promise you that we'll try. And that's the sort of mentality that one has to admire and look for in your leaders. And ultimately, Charlie, I think you and I both know it's our responsibility as people to elect leaders that we want. And I don't know to what extent we get the information as people that we need to do so, but it's those type of people that enable transformation on a national and then regional and global scale. So definitely my favorite. Uh, and I'm probably biased because he's enabled us to to experiment with this vision. But uh, it was a brave move. And there was a lot of risk because, yeah, it. I mean, you, like we talked about earlier, these island nations have offshore banking, and offshore banking was such a big industry um, besides for tourism. And everyone knows, you know, Cayman Islands. Um, you have like Belize. You have um, all these islands that have, um, offshore banking and it's a global industry. And so that, that was in the process of being burnt or like, like changing. And now you're basically asking the governor of the central bank and you're asking the prime minister to take a chance with you on this new cryptocurrency thing that they're hearing about is used for like drugs and all these negative things. If if I was him, I would have kicked you out of my office. I would have said, dude, like, if you want to, like, you know, grow corn or do something like that, where there's no reputational risk whatsoever, I would say, hell yeah, I'm in. But and I know it's one thing to not take a position, but to even just, you know, take the meeting with you um, is such a reputational risk and let you operate out of the country on their part. And then so not only did you succeed but you enabled you you paved the way for other companies to essentially um do the same thing and so now you've you've you you have your fund you have base 2 capital and you're also um doing doing some things with consumer lending um are those are those also industries that you see is that an industry that you see that needs needs help with are you focused on barbados when it t- comes to to business business credit lending well, uh, I think that microcredit and access to credit is an extension of financial inclusion. And, you know, wealth is really, the wealth, the ability to create wealth is greatly enhanced by having access to credit. And even less people have access to credit than they have access to banking or banking type payment services. So I see it as the next, the next major hurdle to be solved for people once they have access to an account to store value and make payments from. We are doing a pilot project, Pay Machine is doing a pilot project in in Barbados. And you know, that company was started. I envisioned Pay Machine being a digital currency payroll company built on the BIT distributed currency payment network. And then once we began digging into the industry and the market, we realized that 
there are some other cool opportunities to make your pay available instantly and to undercut payday lending companies and deploy a different business model to get people out of that vicious cycle of borrowing and getting stuck in a debt spiral. So we're piloting the technology in Barbados, but we recently signed a deal with a large payments company in Panama with a footprint through Latin America to roll out a large-scale pilot there. And so I would say, yes, absolutely, Pay Machine is targeting Latin America, Caribbean, and aiming to ultimately, I mean, like I'm a blockchain guy, so I see a vision for creating a decentralized global credit credit protocol. Um, Credit's hard. Credit's hard. I want to talk about credit for a second because... I have, I have a, I have, it's hard for me to get credit. Like I'll just say it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a mixture of the, the, I never needed, I never got credit. So I never really needed credit. I have credit cards now, so I'm building up my credit, but I'm in the crypto space and I'm a felon. So, I mean, those are the two biggest red flags you can have when entering the credit markets and even asset based lending. Yeah. So how do you change? How do you change that? How do you, um, how do you assign like social scoring for, for credit? Yeah, so the social scoring is a really interesting idea and it's one that I want to explore a lot more. And this has been a recent evolution in that if you think of what made Google as a search engine hugely successful and set it apart from the pack, it was that they configured their algorithm to look at the cross-reference of the links between websites and not just the frequency of keyword searches. And I think that when it comes to credit, I mean, you look at the actual statistics for people who lack credit scores or would maybe be considered unbanked or underbanked, the default rates of those people is actually very low. The issue is that financial system has a problem in being able to score and measure that. And I believe, and this is a thesis we're going to explore, is I believe that If you look at the reputational cross-references of an individual and you use technology to enable that, that you can essentially triangulate and infer meaningful credit worthiness from individuals. So that's one. What's the recourse? Like what if, what if someone just doesn't pay back? Yeah. What's the. So where pay machine is taking an innovative model is we're using third-party guarantors. And in the case of our go-to-market strategy, those guarantors are employers or utility service providers. And those those two personas have special characteristics that enable them to act as a guarantor. In the case of an employer, they know whether or not you're employed and they know whether or not you're going to likely be around in the next three to six months so they can enable short-term finance. Once they act as a guarantor for pay machine, then we can offer much cheaper credit to the employee or contractor. In the case of something like a, a utility provider like a telecom, there is a huge cost to not paying your light bill or your phone bill. The cost is you either don't have electricity or you don't have access to the internet. And so you're going up, you're going up against a huge industry. Um, I mean, the payday lending industry is huge. Yeah, absolutely. And, but the, so this industry, um, I'm fortunate that I've never needed to, to take a payday loan, but I know people that do, you know, you know, a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. You have a big paycheck coming at the end of the month, but you need the money now for a car repair. These interest rates are insane. And I don't know how they go around. Uh, usury laws by doing payday loans and there's a way they do it because here in like florida for example you can't charge an interest rate i I forget the exact number but it's like 18 percent or something like that Mm -hmm. um especially if it's below a certain amount but i i got an email um i got an email from a company and it's like yeah payday loans um interest rates as low as like one percent a day And if you don't understand percentages, you're like, oh, 1% a day is awesome because I only need the money for like six days. And I'm like, okay, that means 6% for six days. That means it's a 365% a year loan. Yeah. hundred Like, that's insane. It's ridiculous. It is usury. And uh, how do they get around it? How do they get around it? You know, I love that. Yeah, I love the legal 
the upper threshold in Panama is over 400% annualized. That's oh the legal God. limit. So there's nothing to get around. I think so. usury is one of the biggest things that is just, the problem is with usury and, and, and I hate, I'm never going to be the first word. Oliver, you know me. I'm never going to be the first person. I'll be the last person to say, this is what needs to be regulated by the government. I'll never be that. Per- you know me. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never, I, I'm a, like a market demand person. Markets are efficient when we allow them to be, um, we need to allow markets. We need people. Well, you know, the governments won't build the roads. The, 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 the communities will build the roads type of guy, you know, give opportunities those first. The problem with, with, with credit markets and loans, and I don't know what the solution is because I'm not, I will be the first person to say that I will point out a problem. Even if I don't know the solution, the problem with the credit markets is that you're pulling on people's emotional strings because when, when, when people, when humans, when we are in lack of another option, we will take whatever option is available to us. Mm-hmm. So when, when we need the money to literally live and to pay our rent, you're not going to tell me not to take the loan. And so when you're pulling at the strings of people's, people's emotions, what's the solution? And I'm, I don't want to say government needs to create, you know, like, the solution is the same thing. I mean, this, the solution is the same thing it was before. It's competition. Now, let's look at that example. So what you it's have... A great, it's a great answer. You have an extremely inelastic demand for credit. And what payday lending companies are doing is they're getting as close to that dire straits user as possible and then charging them the maximum that they can extract from them. So that model is profit maximization. If you flip the script and you start looking at uh, user acquisition for long-term economies of scale that can be facilitated by sort of doing things like aggregating the risk so you can homogenize it and measure it and potentially offer that type of interest rate to pairs, to a pair-to-pair lending marketplace or institutions to pairs. and essentially really introduce competition into that uh, model and move away from profit-centric thinking. I'm speaking to all types of market players in the processing industry, traditional processing, traditional credit, even payday lending companies, and every single one of them is focused on maximizing their profit. And you know what I'm focused on? I'm focused on undercutting them and acquiring more users and acquiring more data. Because the way I see it, this is a big data problem more than it is anything else. If you can measure the risk and you can effectively compete with these people, then you can still have profitable margins. But I mean, I'm looking at it and saying at scale. At scale, how is a payday lending company going to compete with a big data company offering a decentralized credit protocol if we have more access to information and because we have an economy of scale, we have cheaper credit? So I think it's really about improving the tools for measuring risk and then enabling the competition. And, you know, there are trillions of dollars out there that would take a 4% APR or an 8% APR. They do not need to take 450%. So the question is, if I can provide you a reasonable return on investment that you can be certain of or more or certain enough of to take the risk on, then what's going to stop me from offering that? If my business model is to run it like Jeff Bezos, run at a loss for a decade and continue running, and like many tech companies, run at, run at a loss and acquire or run at breaking point and acquire the users, then by the time you wake up and see what's happening, it's too late because our business model will have reached those economies of scale. So we're looking at the entry point as being these relationships with employers and utility companies so that we can offer low-cost credit without having huge access to a credit profile or the information to create credit profiles. And as we develop, we are uh, building and partnering with machine learning labs to allow unstructured data and, and relational data which is not within the traditional purview of these dinosaur payment processing payday lending companies. And I'm hoping that 
we can destroy their business model or force them to compete. So that's so that's the goal. Essentially, offer better services at lower rates, and these companies will need to compete with you. They'll need to lower their rates um, in order to continue competing. It's a, it's, you know, they say payments is a race to zero. I think that's an exaggeration, but there's truth in it. And I would say, you know, this is my first foray into the world of credit, but I think it's a similar paradigm. We're going to see increasing competition enabled by the internet and uh, blockchain technologies, decentralized store and transfer. Why haven't we seen it already? Like, why haven't we seen some of this stuff? Some of the stuff still exists. It doesn't, it hasn't changed. Why haven't we seen it? I think we're starting to see, we're starting to see players emerging in the U S as an example, there's a, company called Earning, which is doing direct consumer lending. And they're, they just raised something like 50 million US and they're allowing people to use their GPS and their smartphone to infer essentially whether or not they're employed at, uh, like say for example, you work at a Burger King, they will use the data of your GPS to see where, what your regular commute is. And then infer whether or not you're employed, which they use as an input to infer your credit worthiness and they offer unsecured small uh small micro loans. And you know, I look at that and I say, yeah, that's going in the right direction. Who's doing that in the Latin American Caribbean region? Oh, no one? Okay, I guess it'll be us then. And then I'll also look at it and say, well, cool. So you're doing this on an entirely centralized infrastructure. That might be a good way to start. How are we going to create an edge which allows us to ultimately be global in our competitive stance? And I think there's a big opportunity for decentralization of credit. Um, and I have some ideas on that, but we'll do one thing at a time and focus on getting to market, serving Panama, deploying, proving to this user base of ours that, which is bigger than the Barbadian population, that we can offer affordable microcredit. And then we'll see how the pack responds. Of course, there's going to be pushback from the entrenched power players. There always is. But the saying is, if you can't beat them, join them. And my interpretation is that the market will ultimately prevail and ultimately they will be beaten if they don't evolve. It's the same thing we think about when we're looking at the banking system. It's the same paradigm that you know, early Bitcoiners and any disruptor, any any technologist will come to the table with. Ultimately, we're right based upon mathematics and logic and reason, and uh, and we'll measure it and we'll execute on it. What's it like growing up in the Barbados? Wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Really, Charlie. not not a single. I mean, you know certain points in your life you're having such a special experience that you can even in the moment appreciate it for how lucky you are i have had so many of those moments growing up in barbados and when i think of i've thought about it like, is there anything i would trade my childhood for and the answer is no not a not a single thing and i'm speaking obviously growing up in barbados it's a very safe island but imagine you know, imagine a whole island feeling like a playground because that's what it was like. You know, we had so much fun, surf, sea, sand, you know, so many great days, man. I think that it was, it has been the biggest lottery ticket that I've ever won was being born and raised in Barbados. Will you stay? Half the year. <laughs> for now half the year i'm actually well that's that's the beauty of the world we live in is that you can start i think that like borders are eventually being being taken away and and i mean this is more hopium or hope than than things i believe but i think you'll i think in our lifetime because we're of similar age i think we'll start to see like you know we're we're used to like the schengen agreement where you can travel between all the european countries i think we'll start to see like countries start doing that that are not in the same region like i think you'll start to see like um where passport holders 
can travel, live between, and do business between two different countries as if those borders never existed. And I think the the, the way the reason that's going to happen is that some of the larger nations are going to become more insular, <clears throat> you know, like, um, and because they're going to get insular and less globalized, smaller nations are going to start to have to band together and say, hey, let's, oh, let's make our economies as if they're one. And I, and I look forward to that. I really do. That would be exciting. I think so as well. And it's been, as the, even as an example, the Caribbean has the Caribbean single market economy. And there was and has been a mandate for a sovereign regional payment system and uh, as well as a free trade zone between the islands. Just as an example of that concept, and the challenges that we faced are things like, well, the establishment of the payment system and who controls what. And I don't think that those frictions will go away. They exist in the European Union and other sort of uh, unions as well. but. There's such a free flow of information and there's a burgeoning digital economy, which by very nature is borderless. And I, I agree with you because I see, I see it as a necessity to, to our continued economic growth and integration to have standardization. And ultimately, I think a lot of seamless information interchange. And with so much information available, really one of the biggest questions that and battles going on is for ownership of that data and the privacy of that data and the rights that we need to have as citizens to control the access and ownership of our own information because that information is our power, it is our independence, and with that it allows us to to uh, strike the balance between the people and the state. Uh, but I look forward to it. It's going to be fun. I mean, I'm, I'm a dual passport holder, so I get to pretty much travel most places with, with ease. I'm, I'm lucky in that way. Um, and I look forward to seeing that integration and openness expand even further. I agree. And on that note, I want to end off, but before I do, how can our listeners follow you on what you're doing? I'm on, I'm on Twitter, Olivision, O-L-I-V-I-Z-I-O-N. And same thing for Instagram. Uh, you could go to base2.com, which is our algorithmic digital asset fund. And we have contact information there. If someone's visiting Barbados, can they come have a coffee with you or a Ab drink or something? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah. the island way. Yeah. Send me an email. <laughs> send me an email. Uh, should I put it here on this forum, oliveratbase2.com? Sure. Why not? Yeah, man. Say whatever you want. Yeah. Thank you, Ollie, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Charlie, my brother. Have a good day. That was, yeah, that was, I think, um, I think, uh, the, the the credit and loaning and payday stuff is very interesting because it's a uh, people are always looking for for governments to like solve all our problems but if we just let the market solve them and we allow people like you to to go out and try to solve them with their with their companies then i think we'll be in a lot better of a place i hope so and i'm you know i've got a roadmap I'd up. we can talk about it i think uh the idea is to build it and then decentralize it and let it go but Ultimately, I think it's inevitable at this point, Charlie, because, you know, I'm sure you're very much the same way. But when I, I've come across so many ideas out of my own experiences that I think, oh, wow, someone should do this or I'll do this in yeah. another time. And then someone does do it. And this is something that I see it. And I've, been, I've just come to the point where I trust, I trust my own intuition on what can and cannot work in the, the world that we live in. And this is definitely, it's definitely emergent. And I've never, I've never seen demand for what we're building in any other endeavor that I've built, which is I'm, I'm CEO of the project now. I, was, I wasn't CEO originally, uh, but I just thought the opportunity was too much to, to let other people 
uh, mess it up when it was there to be done. So now I'm CEO of Pay Machine and really enjoying it actually. It's, it's a lot of fun.